Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 56th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 21st of November 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is sponsored by the new and extremely generous monthly subscriber, John T. Much appreciated, John. I've been looking recently into how I could expand the podcast listenership. One good way I found is to get people to review your podcast on the show's iTunes webpage. If you get a lot of reviews and the iTunes people like the cut of your jib, they might make the show one of the highlighted philosophy podcasts. I know this worked for the guys over on the Partially Examined Life podcast, where it drove their listenership to over 100,000 downloads a show. It'd be great to get a nice little left-wing podcast like this one, access to all those listeners. And think of all the donations. I would be rich and could retire to a palace in the Himalayas. Or, failing that, it could at least instantiate a worldwide socialist revolution. Anyhow, to spice things up a little, everybody who does a review will get a shout-out at the top of the show. So, if you are strapped for cash or like the show but not enough to part with your hard-earned cash, please, please, please help us out and leave a kind review on the iTunes website. For those of you who don't use iTunes, and for those of you who do, I've included instructions on how you go about doing a review on iTunes in the show notes. Also, beware, as once you've written the review, it seems that they take quite a while to display up on the podcast website. I think they vet each message to make sure it's not spam, so don't worry if you don't see any sign of it straight away. Anyhow, to the show. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Workman to the show, Professor of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick. Tom's research explores the philosophical and sociological critiques of modernity, especially as these have developed over the post-Enlightenment era. He has also published a number of books, his latest called If You're In My Way, I'm Walking, The Assault on Working People Since 1970. I came across a talk that the professor gave on the philosophy of science, Marx's understanding of science at the time of writing, and how his notion of science has come under attack over the years from various quarters, both from outside and within Marxism itself. We join the conversation as the professor discusses his latest work in the area. Where I'm doing at least some of my work, and that's some of the developments in the philosophy of science, or, or just in the kind of general social theoretical outlook on science, especially in the social sciences, have kind of internalized or embraced certain very basic ideas, ideas that I think as an aside are somewhat undialectical, but basic ideas that result ultimately in in a kind of anti-essentialism or in at least a denial of a kind of stable aspect of society that can then form the basis of theory. And what happens is usually it's accompanied by a couple of other key moves, one of them being a kind of non-hierarchical view of society, 
something very close to a kind of a liberal view of society with kind of transparent power relations. And there's a sense, at least, that when this happens, that the project of, of Marx, at least the project as Marx kind of developed it as he was responding to critics, that that project kind of takes a direct a direct hit. And it's, it's not one that is really, in the end, very embracing, uh, if I can use that word, of Marx's actual project. What was Marx's understanding of science? And was that the typical concept of or philosophy of science at the time? Well, I think Marx had a kind of uh, multi-sided idea of science. One, it was largely uh, going to be associated with, with a broader materialist outlook. And so he was going to kind of repudiate the idea that there were a priori's when it came to sociological analysis. And, uh, but certainly in his science, he makes all of the kind of standard moves that we would expect to see from someone who's carefully kind of scrutinizing the world. It's uh, deductive, it's uh, inductive. He's sometimes uh, filling in meanings. It's what a person would call abductive. It's kind of guessing at things. But most importantly, it's retroductive in the sense that he does feel that the way to explain the world is to distinguish between appearance and essence and to then retroductively explain the things that we see in terms of the more essential or enduring or abiding features of the social formation and particularly of capitalism. So when you say when you say retroductive, what do you mean by this term? Yes, the way it's generally used, I think, is that a distinction between appearance and reality or a distinction between the more fleeting evanescent aspects of the unfolding of capitalism has to be distinguished from those more abiding or enduring aspects of capitalism, such as the relations of value, and that the understanding here is hierarchical. In other words, that the things that we run into regularly, such as, for example, economic crises, are going to be explained in terms of these stabilizing, or these more stable, I should say, aspects of the social formation. These are what kind of come to be understood as the, the essential aspects, uh, that is the relations in Marx, especially the relations of value. So what it means is you're going to explain the unfolding of, of economic matters. Uh, you're going to explain the, the, the rise of crises. You're going to explain the fact that there is a kind of continual unemployment, continual poverty. You're going to explain these in terms of a series of, of abiding or basically a, a crucial kind of center or abiding aspect of capitalism, and that really is the relations of value. So it's not simply a kind of a theory that looks for a kind of etiology or a series of causes, but rather something that is going to stress that there is a, a kind of stable core that then ramifies and reverberates, and that is really what is going to explain the various uh, events and challenges and problems and so on that we run into in the economy. So he's looking for, say, a, a key driver of all of these phenomena. Uh, well, that, that word works very well. A dynamic, a dunamis, a kind of a, a motor that drives all of this. So he identifies this, and it's more or less just the relations of value. Sometimes we use the term law of value, but Marx kind of shied away from that term. I only know of him using that more or less in passing on a couple of occasions. Uh, but the relations of value are fairly stable in capitalism. And of course, these are not forever and ever stable. They're only stable in the context of a very specific kind of historical period. 
So the essence itself in a society can continually change, but that doesn't mean that science shouldn't strive to identify these essential features. And Marx himself at one point, late in the third volume of Capital, says that if, if appearance and reality were the, basically the same thing, then science would be superfluous. So the real task of science is actually to, 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 to try to discover and explore the ramifications of this essential feature of, of society. What is the importance then of essence in Marx's scientific thinking? Well, the most important thing is by essence, he doesn't mean a little feature or bit part of capitalism that, that endures, or he doesn't mean something that's transhistorical. Uh, he just really means a, a stable set of social relations. And, and those social relations basically coalesce around his notion of value and uh, coalesce around especially his labor theory of value. And that's all, he, that's all it seems, at least, especially when I think we read the Grundrisse or we read Capital carefully. I think that's all in the end he really would say that the essence of capitalism is, that the essence of capitalism more or less these stable relations of value uh, that endure, they abide in that kind of classic sense of an essence as, as the feature that abides, the feature that kind of endures, the constant through change, the fixity amidst the flux, and that kind of language. But all Marx didn't really mean something metaphysical by this. He just meant the kind of stable, I think all he meant was the kind of stable features that endure and can be used to then explain the kind of things that we see on a day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month basis in capitalism or year-to-year -year basis. Um, so, and this for him was what an explanation was. A sufficient explanation was the explanation that actually explained the outward appearances that we encounter regularly. So where does the term dynamic singular fit into this? Okay, well that's a term that goes back to uh, Leibniz. Uh, I think it's kind of the way Marx saw society, though he didn't say anything to this effect in his works. This is a term that usually contrasted with the notion of an aggregate. I think liberal social science sees society as an aggregate. It sees society in the way that we'd see, to use Wittgenstein's famous example, the way we see a teapot. And a teapot has parts, a lid, a handle, a spout, and so on, a body, a foot, and so on. And all those parts are central to the teapot, and it goes together to make a functional unit. And that's kind of the way I think liberals see society. Dynamic singular is something where we would have a kind of a core or essence, and then a series of phenomena on the surface, you know, there's a kind of surface to it. A universe could be a dynamic singular, a solar system is a dynamic singular, uh, a cell can be a dynamic singular, and I think for Marx, society, capitalist social formations or capitalist societies were more or less dynamic singulars. So Marx didn't see society as something that was just simply made up of parts. He saw society as something that had a real set of core or stable relations, and the phenomena uh, kind of emanated from that core. How did the philosophy of science evolve from this type of a view over the years? Well, r right from the outset, there's a division in science. So much of what we, much of the anti-essentialism that we encounter in the 20th century in one form or another, sometimes this takes a postmodern form. Uh, in the writings of Richard Rorty, for example, Rorty is relentlessly hostile to the very idea of essence. At times, the positivist movement or the ideas that are most closely associated with analytic philosophy repudiate the idea of essence. 
So that's in the 20th century, we see these things happening, but this was also happening in the 19th century. The very development of positive science, and especially the appropriation of science sociologically, seemed to carry with it a kind of uh, rejection, uh, perhaps I should say repudiation, of the notion of essence. So even while Marx was was writing and developing his particular brand of sociological science, uh, there were really uh, other movements in science, both natural and sociological, in the writings, especially of the early positivist uh, work of Comte, for example, that were rejecting the notion of essence from the outset. So it's not as though science has developed kind of uniformly in a series of stages, and we can identify a kind of uh, centralist phase in the 19th century and then an anti-centralist phase in the 20th century. These things are unfolding more or less at the same time. Uh, but what I do think happens in the 20th century, and what I think is crucial, is that the embracing of the anti-essentialism becomes a lot more widespread, a lot stronger, uh, especially in the sociological sciences that are attached to the United States, to behavioralism, to the kind of generic rejection of Marxism and so on. So I think there's a reason why it kind of it fixes itself rather firmly. So, so even though it's just a strand of thinking that seems forever present, I do think it's one that becomes a bit more prominent in the latter part of the 20th century. So can you explain then for the common man, what was positivism or logical positivism? Well, logical positivism is a little different. Positivism in the 19th century is, is more or less the idea that the sciences uh, themselves must kind of embrace the um, immediacy of the reality that's before us and not to uh, work backwards and theorize toward a metaphysics or an ontological, a set of ontological assumptions, but just to embrace the, the facticity, if we will, or, the, or the, the baldness of facts that stand before us, which was very closely then attached to the idea of not being too critical of the world itself. And we saw this in the early positivism of the 19th century. There was a kind of conservative social agenda that attached it to itself to the positive sciences. And, um, but more or less, they are just an embracing, almost a celebration or a complete immersion in the, the kind of bald facticity of the world and, and without kind of withdrawing uh, and exploring uh, more uh, critical interpretations of that world. So that was what was happening in the, in the 19th century. In the 20th century, it begins to take on a number of different forms. It emerges, uh, it kind of evolves in part out of analytic philosophy. Uh, in uh, writers like Russell and Ayer and so on. Uh, and it, it, it takes on, uh, again, a, a kind of uh, balder form, but always has this kind of anti-metaphysical motif and anti-essentialist uh, motif. It's, it's important to, to know, though, that I think the moment it's more or less gaining ground, it's also being uh, fairly relentlessly attacked as well, even within science. So again, there is always this tension in science as it's unfolding. But what I do think happens at the risk of being redundant is in, in sociological sciences, a lot of this material alights a little easily. And I think it's doing so in part, at least, because it is a, a brand of thinking that seems to offer kind of ready-made, almost off-the-shelf critiques of Marxism. So the idea then for positivism is perhaps maybe not to look too deep for a core understanding that might then explain a vast wave of data, but to kind of stick on the surface of the phenomena and just try and explain 
that maybe more small effect of the system without trying to get a deep systemic understanding? Yeah. If we use that narrative of death, then yeah, positivism in science affects more or less on the surface. It expressly rejects the idea of pushing too deeply. It has to be a kind of standard, more or less, of factual confirmation. And very closely corresponding with that, the idea of laws as kind of being the simple recurrences, the simple kind of um, continually recurrence of associations or conjunctions. And it's nothing more than that. And I think more or less it's nothing more than that. The way in which it's appropriated often in individual thinkers becomes a little more sophisticated. Uh, but I think at it, in its heart, that's where it is. And I think this was the way in which uh, Marcuse's Reason and Revolution, kind of uh, his one of his earlier works, if not his first real book, when he explores 19th century positivism, this is one of the great insights that he makes, is that there's a real absence of a critical aspect to positivism. In fact, it actually develops to repudiate any kind of notion of science as critique, especially social critique. So if you think about, say, the world of physics or that, that would seem to be perhaps not as affected by positivism as, say, the social sciences. Ironically, the theorizing was first in the kind of physical sciences initially, but many scientists very quickly kind of repudiated this idea. So positivism was a kind of motive methodology or a mode of science that wasn't necessarily widely embraced. But what does happen is in the social sciences, it, it has enough influence uh, that various aspects of it can attach themselves to kind of liberalist social science. So it probably has a much more lasting impact there than it probably had in the physical sciences. I'm not a specialist in the physical sciences, but I am aware of some of the critiques that actual scientists have made of those uh, basic traditions. So it was interesting that the philosopher Richard Rudner, in the middle part of the 20th century, the philosopher of science, Rudner said, you know, the idea of a completely neutral scientific investigator observing the objective world is, has probably always been a fiction, he said. So where did the avowed anti-Marxist Karl Popper fit into all of this? Okay, well, there's, there's different Poppers. There's the Popper who is the kind of uh, conjectures and refutations Popper. For him, there is the idea that science has to really have this kind of falsification dimension to it. And so that ends up being uh, indirectly somewhat anti-metaphysical, anti-ontological. You know, the, the, the larger array of critical concepts that come to bear uh, on the process of social thinking basically have no place in that kind of formulation. But then, of course, there's the much more reactionary popper uh, of the open society and its enemies. And this popper is simply directly and aggressively going after the, the, the real critics uh, we've had in, in human history, you know, Plato, uh, Hegel, and Marx, uh, especially. And uh, that's a much more reactionary piece. Uh, it's funny, in the early part of the, when, when, the, when these writings first broke, there was some effort made to challenge them. But I think as time has gone on, uh, the um, uh, weightiness of that criticism has somewhat waned. So there's Popper, the scientific theorist, uh, who uh, the falsificationist whose basic philosophy of science is not going to be that compatible with with certainly the kind of social science that Marx was doing. 
So falsification would be the idea that if there is a counterexample, the theory doesn't work. More or less, yeah. yeah. So in any kind of a complex system where you, it's not always 100% black or white, then this would mean no theory is valid, essentially. Well, and that's, that's just any social formation. So if we take Marx's law, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, all we have to do is find instances, one would suppose, a strict interpretation of Popper, all we have to do is find instances when that's not true for the whole theory to be thrown out. As Marx is at great pains to show, especially in Capital, the actual world is extremely complicated and sophisticated, and although we might be able to trace out causal change and even trace those causal changes back to an abiding kind of stable core or essence of society, uh, that doesn't mean that that those particular effects are always going to be uh, perfectly predictable. Of, of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, he would say, well, this was a problem that had been noticed by political economists long before me. All I did was try to offer a theoretical account of it. I think he would have said, none of us are ever saying that this absolutely always has to be the case 100% of the time. And that certainly is the kind of criteria uh, I think that is more or less posited by Popper's philosophy. That kind of falsification idea makes it very difficult to work in the social sciences or to think of them as science. Certainly, it makes it difficult, uh, yes, because it almost seems like history is, is nothing if not replete with inconsistent outcomes and, and so on uh, from time to time. It's, it's to confuse the tendencies with absolute necessity and so on. It, it, it involves a number of kind of strict criteria that don't seem to just work when we do social history. Even when we try to do it scientifically, we are still faced with the fact that these are open systems, to use the language of Roy Baskar, and therefore it, these are not experimental conditions, and therefore there are variations. We're looking at more or less always at probabilities or likelihoods, not absolute certainties. So this is the idea then that, you know, in maybe in certain types of physics experiments, you're able to isolate the system and make it as unnatural, but as reliable as possible. But when we're in the real world, you cannot create a perfect laboratory conditions. And so there, there's noise and different signals going into the mix. Yeah, the real world is an open system. So even though we can see that as the relations of value accrue, just to go back to Marx's kind of classic example from capital, as the relations of value accrue in the rising organic composition of capital, it is not absolutely the case that we'll see falling rates of profits. There can all be all sorts of offsetting conditions uh, that have a direct bearing on the way in which that the, the press of those relations of value can actually appear in history. And um, this is a much more complex way of seeing the world without losing a sight of a kind of causal sequence or a causal chain. And uh, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for that in, a, in at least a strict falsificationist paradigm. Of course, at some point, falsification is true. If, for example, the falling, if we take Marx's again famous example, if we never ever saw falling rates of profit, we begin to wonder. But we also see the falling rates of profit frequently enough so that, so that we think that the most that we can say is that um, there are uh, factors that intervene, but there might be something in the theory. What was Marx's concept of a law then? I think that his notion of law was, first of all, not what we call the humane one, which is just constant conjunction or 
you know, if there is an A, then it will be associated with a B, and the two of them will appear in succession, and so on. That's the Humean, the, the, the uh, Hume's concept of law. It's not that. Uh, it seems to be an, an, a moment in the, in the causal sequence, the outward apparent world, and his kind of core or essence. So in capital, for example, the, the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is the law that is the kind of midpoint or the intermediate point between the rising organic composition of capital rooted in the relations of assets on the one side and crises and spikes in unemployment, spikes in misery, spikes in poverty and so on on the other. So it is it is the moment uh, in a sense that is almost lies in between the, the obvious things we see in a day-to-day -day sense and the kind of stable or core uh, relations. Their laws, there's an element of them that has to be understood under the aspect of necessity, but there are laws that unfold in the world uh, and that world massages these laws, uh, tamps them down to use his language, changes their character a bit, uh, and so on. But they have this kind of midpoint or mid mid status. There are really only two that we're talking about when we're looking at capital. One was the general law of accumulation, and the other one was the law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit. So I think that they're they're this kind of they they are the kind of explanatory nexus, if you will. Uh, between the world that's kind of standing before us and the kind of abiding relations of value that, that, that very much are kind of sunk into the way in which our productive world unfolds. I heard you also talking about how Nietzsche was quite against the idea of essence. Well, in, in many respects, at least philosophically, the 20th century did not belong to Marx, it belonged to Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche's twin kind of philosophical pillars, which we know as perspectivism and nihilism, both involved the repudiation of a transcendent ground, either of knowledge or ethics. And his repudiation, especially of a transcendent ground for knowledge, what is known as Nietzschean perspectivism, is more or less the basis of a lot of 20th century uh, thought, especially postmodernism. In fact, I, I think one could reasonably say that the great postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty you know, who really was America's leading philosopher, at least for the last 30 or 40 years, was Nietzsche with an exclamation mark. Uh, he embraced basically the core of the Nietzschean repudiation of anything of a transcendent ground for either knowledge or ethics. And it's especially this idea that there's a ground, that knowledge can have a ground, that is associated with a kind of radical relativism or a radical skepticism, that knowledge can only kind of uh, knowledge is part of a human community. And uh, Marx would not necessarily uh, disagree with that, but he would nuance it considerably by suggesting strongly that the knowledge it can still have a kind of objective sense or quality or characteristic to it. Um, so even though a critical community will have a knowledge of, say, capitalism uh, understood the way Marx understood it in terms of its abiding essence, its laws and so on, and its outward crises, uh, that is not in any way kind of arbitrary or voluntary. That's that that's very objective in the sense that it, emerge, it emerges in a in a group or a field of scholars who are very carefully looking at the world, and it reflects truths about the external world. Insofar as the kind of uh, radical skepticism of Rorty would reject that, then that that would just be a you know hostile in a sense to what Marx was was actually trying to do. If if we can ultimately say that there aren't 
kind of uh, critical statements to be made of capitalism, uh, which is the only thing I think that can emerge out of Nietzsche's philosophy, uh, then of course that's going to be fairly hostile to Marx uh, and to the Marxist tradition. Did this kind of radical skepticism lead to a kind of rejection of science in general? or uh, Well, it did in the case of someone like uh, Richard Rorty. Uh, Rorty goes as far as to deny the idea of an antecedent reality. Uh, I think in his writings he's fairly consistent on this. Uh, in fact, I think he's remarkably consistent on this. Uh, so, And for him, science discovers nothing. Science for him is very close to to a form of uh, poetry among the community of scientists. It's a language, it's a, a discourse that is consensual uh, among the, the so-called scientists. And scientists don't find, uh, create, they don't find the world. They're not, it's not nature that determines what scientists say. It's, it's, the, it's the habits of scientists themselves in the context of an historical culture. Now, Rorty might come back and say, look, that doesn't mean in any particular uh, context uh, that there is a uh, not a kind of a meaningful truth content, but there is a sense in which this is ultimately arbitrary or, or bound by the community. And I think uh, if we use that criteria, we would say that there are many scholars in the world today who feel very strongly uh, that there's not really nothing wrong with capitalism. That kind of outlook that's embraced by Rorty would sit very comfortably with that and uh, would, does not leave a lot of room for, for genuine criticism. It reduces criticism really to the viewpoint of a group of scholars. So there apparently, you know, if you follow the logic out, there's not truths about the world. Uh, there are a multiplicity of truths that each individual community will make, even scholarly communities. So the liberal view of American capitalism is just as valid as the critical socialist view of American capitalism. That's the logical conclusion of Rorty's philosophy, and that's fundamentally hostile to Marx. So what, what was the Sokol hoax? Well, the Sokol hoax, this, this is the, the scientist Sokol, had uh, submitted an article where he deliberately made all sorts of uh, scientific errors, and he did it to kind of spoof postmodernism. And uh, then he announced, of course, that he had done this, and um, kind of the world reacted very negatively to that, uh, because he kind of exposed the fact that they hadn't really done their home homework. So he submitted it to a journal, I think, Social Texts. He uh, gave it an odd title that was kind of related to the science that he did on, on quantum gravity. So they publish it, and then he says, well, look, at I deliberately, this is full of errors, it's full of nonsense. No serious scientist would believe anything that's being said here. And uh, he tries to do it to, to expose the kind of scholarly shabbiness of the journal. And, of course, he does it more, though, to, to kind of take a run at the, the postmodern critique of science. Or what he would call, I think what he's really going after is what he would call the strong program in the sociology of scientific knowledge. And that's the program that's basically Nietzschean. That's the program that basically would say that uh, scientists also aren't guided by nature. They're guided guided by culture. It's not nature that arbitrates between disputes. It's culture. Uh, it's humans themselves that arbitrate between disputes. There's no distinction between a truth claim, if by truth we mean the, the claims that ultimately nature would impress upon us. Uh, so therefore, what, what really matters is truth claims, uh, nothing more. And this is the, the, the view, more or less, of the strong program in the sociology of scientific knowledge. 
and he was going after that. He wanted to do that. So he sent this article in expressly to kind of expose them. Most most think that it was a kind of odd strategy uh, because I think we'd find that a lot of journals publish things without necessarily thoroughly doing their homework. So it seemed a bit unfair to do this to social text. Uh, but the criticism that he makes is not to be lost. And it's basically a criticism of the Nietzschean outlook, the idea that knowledge is really only bounded by human culture. It's not uh, really corresponding to an external world, res extensa, uh, as Descartes would say. That's not what knowledge really is about. And Sokol would say, well, look, at I, I'm a, a physicist. Uh, I study quantum gravity. We work with a modest realism. We cannot work with anything else. So what the, the claims that are being made by postmodern critiques of science are outrageous to us, he would say. How aware of the power of this dismissal of essence or science is it within the postmodern movement of philosophy? You know, are they are they strictly aware of what their philosophy is used for? I think so. Uh, I think that when you see the attacks on anti, the kind of anti-totalizing narrative, as we saw in Leo, that there's an awareness that. The tradition that's been most guilty of that transgression is Marxism. And we could go on through each philosopher. Uh, each philosopher builds on and improves on the Marxist tradition in one way or the other. And I think there's a, a vague kind of awareness. It, I, I think in the, as, as it has been said occasionally by, by, by scholars, uh, I recall a comment made by Barbara Epstein that in the end, uh, Marxism is the kind of the reference point for most of this theory. She said, you know, those who see post-structuralism as a theory of radical politics are more or less arguing that post-structuralism has replaced Marxism. So there always is a sense, at least in the more learned scholars, that, that Marxism is, is the target. But I think ultimately what really happens here is it's just a kind of intellectual theme that we can trace right back to the ancient Greeks, but it's a theme that kind of uh, alights more easily uh, depending on the time. And the crucial themes, the crucial kind of intellectual themes associated with postmodernism don't necessarily encourage, in fact, probably actively discourage what many would take to be the, the basis of a kind of Marxist sociological critique. Now, I have to, as soon as I say that, I have to kind of contradict myself because there are Marxists and there's part of a part of a Marxist tradition. And I think of the journal in particular, Rethinking Marxism, uh, that has embraced uh, the philosophy of, of Richard Rorty. And um, in fact, it does so in its basic uh, editorial statement, its inaugural editorial statement, embraced like um, Feyerabend and, and Richard Rorty and Thomas Kuhn. And these are kind of the kingpins almost of the kind of postmodern critique in one way or another. So there's not even a consensus among Marxists that this has actually been the legacy of the postmodern tradition. I would also want to add that, um, uh, although I think that they're wrong, but I would also want to add that I think we're kind of passing through the twilight of postmodernism. I think it's had its day. When all the dark clouds roll away Yeah, the sun begins to shine See my freedom from across the way And it comes right in on time When it shines so bright 
So you said that the 20th century was Nietzsche's century. Why do you say that? Well, because most thinkers in one form or another made the linguistic turn. Each thinker kind of offered their own idea and they drew, if not expressly on the philosophical content of Nietzsche's theory, on Nietzsche's idea of a kind of refreshing critique of the world, a refreshing critique of culture especially. I think this was the notion of Adorno's negative dialectics, Derrida's idea of philosophy without a center, Charles Taylor's notion of philosophical anthropology, uh, uh, Gadamer's philosophical hermeneutics, genealogy of Foucault. Each of these critiques drew, on, I think, on the spirit of Nietzsche much more than they ever drew on the spirit of Marx. By saying that, you think they tried to reinvent the wheel somewhat in their own direction? Well, they, I, I think I think that they were careful and attentive social thinkers that were swept up in the cultural critique that Nietzsche not inaugurated, but raised to extraordinary heights. And so it's not political economy. It's a form of sociological and cultural critique uh, that is uh, extremely sophisticated. And uh, I think in a sense, the kind of Nietzschean mood bequeathed that to the 20th century. It's not necessarily reactionary, it's just not in the Marxist tradition in the sense that some see it. And uh, it, it was embracing certain ideas that were ultimately going to lead to a repudiation of Marx and Marx's notion of science, especially the, the anti-essentialism or the sheer weight, weight that was attached to the importance of cultural critique at all, that kind of thing. We are in a time of, of capitalist crisis at the moment, post-2008, and we see a resurgence of Marx I saw you doing a talk where you talked about how Marx's thinking and explanation for a crisis and stuff gets attacked from within the Marxist left. Uh, let me just answer your question a little differently. I think we try to make Marx harder than Marx is, and that's probably not wise because Marx is hard enough. And I, I think that our world more or less has such a strong reaction against the kind of reductionist, I'll just use some of the language, you know, anti-essentialist, anti-reductionist, anti-totalizing, and so on, that when we read Marx, uh, we're, we're somehow not picking up on the fact that he was really working with a different intellectual paradigm in many respects, that his notion of science started with the notion of essence. If if our world kind of unwittingly or us unselfconsciously kind of are taking in a different sense of where to begin the scientific project, it makes it harder to understand Marx. And 
I have looked very carefully at the lectures, for example, of David Harvey on Marx and uh, read very closely books like Enigma of Capital. And I, I think we see it there. We see, even in Harvey, we see a tendency to not simply um, present Marx the way Marx is, even though it looks like careful exegesis. Uh, we're trying to do the careful exegesis without actually bearing in mind the actual intellectual points of departure of Marx himself. So it makes the readings odd, I guess, or strange or peculiar. And I don't know if we can ever improve on this or get better at it, but it is to say that our world gets in the way of a reading of the text. And when I say our world, I mean our most subtle kind of unselfconscious intellectual biases that we bring to the actual reading of these texts. And we end up making them more complicated than I think they really are. Uh, and I think they're, for the most part, straightforward. I think Hegel's to read. I don't think Marx is. What, what, what are the typical ones do you think that are introduced? Well, the, the basic one, I think, is a failure to understand essence, uh, a failure to understand that Marx really did believe that there was a, a kind of abiding or enduring aspect to capitalism. It's um, a failure to understand that uh, he was serious about laws. Laws had an aspect of necessity to them. They weren't, laws weren't something that were, were spoken about casually. Uh, laws were the very form of the account of crisis. They, they weren't posited as an hypothesis in his work. They were actually posited as uh, learned accounts, highly analytical accounts of what was actually happening. And I think it's hard for us to understand that that's what he was, what was doing. I think that it's hard for us to, to grasp that he was responding to a lot of political economy of his day, that large swaths of capital, for example, are basically engaged in a clarification exercise. But it, we, t we tend to take something else from it. We'll take our very 20th century way of putting a great emphasis on spatial or tempor temporal categories, for example, and try to read backwards and force these categories onto Marx. Or we'll even try to force the idea of a as kind of post-structuralist or post-modern -mo Marx onto the reading of the text. And along the way, we basically abandoned the rel relatively simplistic paradigm that he was using, and I think it's not that difficult. And when we do that, uh, I think we open ourselves up to some very uh, creative interpretations of Marx, uh, but, but he himself might be puzzled by them. I've watched those videos of David Harvey as well. I remember one stage he was asked, did he agree that the law of value was correct? And he kind of said, kind of no, but yes, in some other strange way that to me was completely uh, undecipherable. I don't know if you saw that bit. Yeah, I might know the part you're talking about because it, it is consistent with ideas that he actually makes in Enigma of Capital in, in that book, which is a wonderfully interesting book, but troubling at points. I think I know the passage that you're talking about. And what I saw is glaringly absent from, from that is an understanding that Marx was serious, that, that when you speak of law, it has an aspect of contingency, but also an aspect of necessity. And I think that uh, David Harvey in that in those moments was overlooking the fact that Marx took the notion of necessity very, very seriously. Uh, it was at the heart of what he considered to be a sufficient account of capitalist crisis, we might look at necessity today as as quaint or, or cute 
but he took the notion of necessity very seriously. So when he's using the term law, there is an aspect of necessity that's attached to that notion. Uh, and uh, he's not saying absolutely under every circumstance must this unfold exactly in this way. The laws are released into history. And um, therefore, we tend to see history itself as being a bit richer. But he was serious about the aspect of necessity. It's a genitive construction, even in the German. It's the law of the tendency. It's of the tendency. It's genitive construction. It's not, it's not a tendency. And at one point, Har Harvey says, you know, uh, Marx starts out with the notion of a law, and then it's a law of a tendency, and then it's just a tendency. Uh, and I think that's fundamentally not what Marx did. When seeing those videos, which some of them I thought were very good, but some of them I found a bit confusing, like when you say that you don't think that the law of value works on, on some level, like Harvey said, it's kind of like, what do you make of all the rest of it? Because everything, everything falls nearly off, off this law. Yes, well, that's right. I suppose it could be wrong, although we're in the realm now of Hilary Putnam's claim that uh, it would be truly miracu miraculous since so much seems to accord with it. But if it could be all wrong, of course, there's a provisional sense to all science. But when Harvey's saying that those are not, that's not the spirit, I would argue, it's not even close to the spirit of Marx's actual work. Uh, this is taking great liberties with what I would call the intellectual scaffolding of Marx's capital, great liberties with it. Maybe what Harvey believes Harvey may believe that we might have started out with the notion of a law, and then it became a law of a tendency, and then it just became a tendency. And that's perfectly legitimate. But that's that's not even anything close. And as you say, to what Marx thought, and as you say, if you, if you let that go, uh, then you just have a kind of interesting series of musings on capitalism. Uh, they may or may well be correct. They may or may not be true. They may or may not unfold in history. It's really um, not that much different from a kind of piece of literature that's uh, kind of reflective and, and absorbed in the world. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Tom. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. My, my absolute pleasure. If they asked me, I could write a book about the way... On this episode, you heard the theme tune... The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra and Billie Holiday singing All of Me. You also heard Brand New Day by Van Morrison and you are now listening to Frank Sinatra telling us how we could write a book. I did have a comment from a previous episode where someone thought I was gratuitously bashing on David Harvey for some reason. And here I am in this episode going after him again. I must say I like David Harvey. I've listened to a lot of his capital lectures and even travelled many miles to go to one of his lectures last year. But I do disagree with him on a couple of things. And I suppose I apologise to all those Harvey fans out there if listening to me having a go at him wrecks your head. In my defence, it's only on theoretical issues. How could I possibly abuse a fellow bearded Marxist type dude? Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember, if you'd like to do an iTunes review, the instructions are in the show notes.
Just to tell them that I 